Welcome to the Toasted Sister Podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. Before we get started, I want to let you know that I appreciate you for listening to this podcast. I put a lot of work into making this podcast a resource where you can learn about Native food and all the awesome work that Indigenous chefs are doing across the country. It takes hours to produce one episode. That's finding guests, writing scripts, editing audio, and uploading onto the website and SoundCloud. This is my baby. I think about Toasted Sister every day, and it's been almost a year since I started this podcast back in January. So 2017 is almost over, and yearly subscriptions are due, and the bills are adding up. So I'd like to ask you if you could help out. I set up a PayPal donate button on the Toasted Sister website. If you really like what I'm doing here and you want to help me continue to tell Native food stories, go to ToastedSisterPodcast.com and donate a little or donate a lot. Give any amount by clicking the donate button. Or if you'd like to buy a Toasted Sister drink tumbler, you can do that right now while supplies last. It'll make a good Christmas present for the foodie in your family. So let's get to it. In this episode, I talked to Clinkett chef Rob Kaneen. So I, I know you as a chef in Alaska. Um, can you tell me about the move and uh, why you decided to move to North Carolina, of all places? Sure. Um, so I'm, uh, I'm Clinkett, born and raised in Alaska. I was born in Petersburg in Southeast and mostly grew up in Anchorage. Left for the first time when I was 18 to attend the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. Uh, from there, I moved on to New Orleans for two years. I worked at Emerald's second restaurant, NOLA, and then back up to Alaska for about two years. I met my wife and we actually moved to North Carolina. We, yeah, we moved to Durham, North Carolina for five years, worked in restaurants and she was going to school. And we went back to Alaska and I'd been there for about, we've been there for 15 years. <laughs> Honestly, I just think the universe was telling us to, to, to move along. It was a hard decision. There's some macroeconomic things going on in the state that I think affect catering and food service. And then for me also, I was doing a lot of work under health and wellness. You know, when money starts getting tight, those are the things that go away. And so, you know, we, we were looking at the Durham area and through the Southeast um, U.S., my in-laws live in South Carolina, so we wanted to, you know, be a little closer to them. And uh, we have a seven-year-old daughter now that just want to, you know, give her some opportunities. And that was kind of the, the move. Um, I used to say that North Carolina was one of the most underestimated food areas in the country, and now it's really celebrated, you know. So it was sort of kind of hard going from being a big fish in a small pond to a, you know, very small fish in a very large pond, but. We've been having a lot of fun here, and it's been been a pretty good move. And I want to ask you about Durham and and the southern cooking that you're doing now. But I want to ask you first about uh, food in Alaska. I mean, what were some of the things that you were cooking when you were there? Well, I was very involved in policy and in uh, food sustainability issues, food knowledge, and education. And you know, sometimes I kind of started doing a lot of contract work, and I. Maybe I kind of seeked that out, some opportunities. Part of it was because I had wanted to learn more about indigenous foods and local foods in Alaska. And then you kind of start, as you learn more, you find out that 
local foods mean one thing at a restaurant or at a store and another thing when you're foraging or subsistence living, seasonality is completely different in, you know, Southeast Alaska than it is in South Central. And then you talk about seasonality at a farm versus, you know, when something's blooming, um, it's just very different. Um, so I started kind of working on that and I think I got known as that and then had some really amazing opportunities to travel around the state and work with elders and work with nutritionists, cook with traditional foods, with new recipes. And when I was doing items like that, I would use the term educate with entertainment because instead of going in and saying, hey, diabetes and obesity and cancer and doom, you know, it's like, hey, let's make some muktuk sushi and it's gluten-free and dairy-free, but it's good for you. And you know, we'd kind of do these other things. Like I made a black bean salsa with corn and dried walrus. You know, it was kind of like a dip that you could eat with corn chips. So again, gluten-free, dairy-free, good carbohydrates and nutrition from the beans, also from the seal. So it was, and, and then, you know, kind of focusing on ingredients that were around the area. So I've, over the, you know, five or seven years, I did um, a lot of awesome cooking um, opportunities and expeditions. I got to cook a porcupine <laughs> and um a lot of seafood uh seal and whale and then um through southeast it's a it's a rainforest so there was a lot of botanicals and and uh traditional kind of greens that were and berries and things like that so it was it was amazing and then mm. through that i eventually became known as an expert <laughs> which you know was cool so anyways mm. but it was kind of a lot of probably searching looking for local foods and local opportunities and connecting sort of my heritage and traditions with, with what I do for a living. Okay. And how do you cook porcupine? I mean, it, it seems like that's a, a hard animal to sort of break down. I mean, what, what do you cook porcupine with and what does it taste like? The funny part about that, uh, I flew to this little town and a lot of times when I, we were doing these items, like I did this uh, collaboration with Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, called traditional foods contemporary chef and so we'd go to the interior like oh well what's available in the interior and a lot of times it's kind of like you know oh i've got a half a duck i've got some moose i've got some you know cranberries i mean it was just sort of funny so then you kind of take that and you chew on it and digest it and it's like okay this is how we can work with this and then then you have to think about where you're cooking um i did a lot of item you know that one in particular uh i worked on a propane stove and a and a gas and a fire so it's sort of like making risotto like you know on a fire with the you know you so it's just kind of really neat but then again kind of going along those lines of sustainability and and food awareness uh i did this work kind of in the on the bering sea coast and it was a village of 500 people and it was uh sponsored by the fdpir food distribution program for indian reservations so when you take that on a macro level and you're talking about hominy or pozole or or pastas and beans like okay well great well then you distribute some of that stuff up into alaska and people don't really know what what hominy is so i made a seal pozole um but then i was also going to do another dish and i realized when you walk into homes they have like electric cooktops on top of their stoves so you think okay well hey we can just boil some beans but they're not going to boil beans because gas is heating fuel is so expensive that they're not going to, you know, cook beans for three hours. That's, you know, so it, it's sort of wrapping your mind around ways that you think you're helping, but you're really not. Well, what is help? <laughs> is if you're giving them something like a recipe with, you know, something they've got to cook all day in an oven that they can't can't afford to be turned on or there's hardships there, 
you know, so it was, it was really eye-opening to, to travel around and see that because most of the time, even in Southeast, you still have access to, you know, pretty regular uh, airport flights and, you know, the marine highway system. So it was it was pretty neat. Yeah, and you kind of touched on a topic that I've always been interested in. It's just access, access to some of these tools that you're talking about, like either, either like the um, kitchen utensils and the pots and pans and then the fancy knives and everything. I mean, when, when you were working with people out in Alaska, like um, doing demonstrations or uh, being that educator of healthy native food, I mean, how did you sort of balance that uh, that idea? that we do need to learn how to cook, we do need to learn how to eat healthy, but also I have to work with limited limited resources. Well, I took a pretty hard stance on that in the beginning, and, and it sort of also, that was some of the stuff that evolved in my career as well. So I had worked at two restaurants that were, you know, AAA, Four Diamond, kind of higher end, you know, 40 to $60 for an entree plate, could be the higher end sides of the entree prices. Um, and I'd buy local food. And then for three years, I owned a restaurant and um, I was trying to buy the same local produce and product. And it's like, well, I can't do that because I'm only charging 15 or $18 for an entree or, you know, a smaller price point. And that kind of makes you think about what, what does local food mean and what does accessibility to local food? So how can you support a local, local product if you can't afford it? And then kind of going back to that, when you step yourself away from somewhere like Anchorage, which is, you know, a pretty well, it's a city. The landscape around it is very different, but there'd be very similar things. If you were walking down the street, you'd find shopping, you know, franchises and, you know, markets and things like that. But, you know, so when I was doing something, let's say I was going to, uh, you know, somewhere rural, you know, what I would do is kind of make it a point to, number one, see what was available locally, meaning like, where was I going to, what was I going to get, say, out of uh, somebody that was contributing something out of their freezer that they had shot or harvested. And then secondly, you know, I would make it a point to never sway too far off an ingredient. So for example, you know, I would do a lot of things with like, I'd make a fresh roll and, and sushi, for example, or a fried rice. And not only could you take that recipe and you could switch it, you know, you could do, I mean, I, I've done a pan seared salmon. And then, you know, hey, if you have leftover salmon the next day, you have some rice, you have an egg, maybe you don't have an egg. You have some soy sauce, which is pretty shelf stable, and some vegetables that could come out of the freezer, like bird's eye, you know, frozen vegetables or something. Um, Then you crumble some salmon over it, you know. So you've ways to kind of create a meal and work with health, but also, you know, something like, say, for example, a fresh roll. You have rice paper, rice vermicelli, and you can either... You know, some places, I mean, I would work in restaurants, or I'm sorry, I would work in communities that had that on their shelves. And if not, you know, at least I knew that they could, if they were in Anchorage, they could buy something like that. And it wasn't like a bean sprout that would go bad on the trip up. Or, you know, if you've ever tried putting a banana in a suitcase, it doesn't work very well, or a backpack. So kind of thinking about things like that that were somewhat shelf-stable that you could get access to. And, you know, pretty much every time I went somewhere, I would always go to the local store and see what was available to, again, I'm not helping anybody if I'm like, oh, well, you have to get your, you know, $20 cheese and grate it over finally after you some truffle oil on it or some other obscure ingredient. That's not going to help anybody. So yeah. it was really paying attention to what was available, what was around. And honestly, when I was packing, I would get 
three boxes that were cardboard with the styrofoam coolers in them. I think I'd buy them for like 20 bucks. And I'd buy those specifically because the boxes would be 50 pounds. So I could put, you know, a chef's knife, a paring knife, a cutting board, a pot, a pan, an electric hot top, um, and sort of emulate what was available. Um, you know, and, and I think, again, working with sustainability um, and accessibility, you kind of start realizing like, wow, do I really need, you know, if you you need a knife. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, and, and whether it be something $20 that you buy at a, a grocery store or, or a $400 knife, you know, the best thing you can learn is how to keep it sharp. So mm-hmm. it's a tool, you know, and so it, and it's kind of for me, as, as I got more and more into accessibility, um, that's when it became more and more apparent. When I kind of started shedding away some of the some of the gadgets and tricks and things that I had done that were more aesthetic for finer dining or something like that. Right, right. And uh, one of the things that you're also known for in Alaska is uh, feeding former President uh, Obama. Uh, can you tell me about that experience? What did you cook for him, and um, what you know, what sort of things did he eat? Absolutely, that was that was definitely a, a personal and career favorite. He came to Alaska for three days to check out the effects of climate change firsthand. So he spent time in uh, Dillingham, in in Seward, like where you could like literally look at a glacier and there would be markers saying this is where it was in 1974, 1982, 1989, 1992, blah, blah, blah. And you would see these markers of this drastic change, you know? Um, So he would, he was doing that. Um, One of the hosts that uh, invited him into the, to a home that he, he ate at um it was 20 people 13 including the including him and the host could go downstairs and dine i think a lot of the people there they were very established people in the state and some of them were educators some of them were elders it was very interesting but it was also talking about effects of of climate change and and mostly like subsistence foods and traditional foods and policies i think might have been in there it's sort of funny because you know you can walk down the street or you know, see the governor at a barbecue, or I've known pretty much every elect, most of the elected officials on a statewide level since I was in high school, and quite a few of them now personally. So it was sort of funny that when I got to cook for uh, President Obama, you know, the first thing that was said was, uh, "Don't linger when you put the food down; you'll be detained. Um, <laughs> don't, don't, you know, t- don't interrupt or anything." And most of the food was all, all of the food was based on Alaskan cuisine, so it was. Uh, you know, local greens, uh, did a birch balsamic vinaigrette with some, uh, uh, you know, some shade vegetables over that. Uh, there were razor clams, smoked salmon, and then there was some sausage. And, I did, and then we did a surf and turf with a uh, moose and salmon. And um, yeah, and he was, he, he enjoyed everything. I mean, that was kind of neat. The, the kind of funny part for me, or interesting part, was first of all, there were probably for as many people in the house, I think it was like a two to one ratio of secret service that were walking around or <laughs> inside and outside. And then he, he's got different chefs for different occasions. So they've got a civilian chef that cooks for him and his family. And then the gentleman that I was working with was a, a professional chef that would work with um, traveling and then cooking in other, you know, wherever he was in the world. So for example, we'd be cooking and he's like, you know, with the moose, he's like, well, go more medium well the medium rare on the meat it's like, okay and then he's kind of like hey this is how you make it this is the kind of this is how you make the cocktail this is what he wants or no sugar in his tea or and then some of it was very interesting because he's like oh what's in that can i taste it and you realize he was just kind of collecting information but also or letting me know of his preferences as mm-hmm. as we were doing it 
he seemed to be well received. I mean, it was sort of interesting because he said, "Don't be offended." He just came in from four hours, you know, off the East Coast, so he's four hours behind schedule. But he ate everything <laughs> mm-hmm. except dessert. He did. He did pass on dessert. Okay. Would you do the same for uh, President Trump today if he asked you to cook him a dinner? Hmm. Focusing on indigenous foods. Yeah, or maybe southern food if he's uh, in Durham. Sure. Well, I'm a much smaller fish down here, so I'd have to be in line for many, many talented and established chefs down here. <laughs> but if that occasion arose, I would, I would, I would focus on the educational aspect of it, and I would try to do do my best to to show, you know, the bounty of local foods that are available. Yeah, I would do it. Mm-hmm. If uh, he asked for uh, some native food, I mean, what's one thing that you would want him to try? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't gather he's the most adventurous eater, mm-hmm. so I'd probably stick to a, a game protein, maybe not even seafood, like more of a bison or a deer or a moose or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that said, I'm, you know, I think for down, down in North Carolina in particular, I'm, you know, I, I see foragers from time to time or uh, meet people that are kind of working within um, traditional aspects or local aspects or indigenous aspects of food here. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's exciting to see things like some of it folds into it, um, into things you'll see like wild persimmons, for example, or uh, there's a naturopath that I met and I buy sassafras root from him and make a tea, which is delicious. And you kind of get where the idea of root beer or sarsaparilla came from. It's really, really good. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It's, 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 uh, it's interesting though, yeah. but I'd, I'd probably stick I'd probably stick with, I wouldn't stray too far into something adventurous for the current (laughs) president. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned you worked in uh, New Orleans for a while, and uh, you you said Emerald, Emerald's Restaurant? Did you you work with Emerald Lagasse? Well, I I worked for him. Mm. (laughs) Um, You know, I kind of mentioned, like, the first first time I ever met him, they thought that NOLA was on fire. And uh, so he came over and, and was sort of like, everybody okay? He was like, great, chef. He was like, took <laughs> off. So, But, you know, upon reflection, he was opening up his second restaurant. He had plans in Las Vegas. And then at that point, the Food Network was shown everywhere in the country except for Louisiana, actually. Mm. So when I moved back to Alaska, people were like, you know, I was like, oh, I was working for the chef in New Orleans. I'm like, Emerald? I'm like, yeah, how do you know? You know, and then I'd see a show. So it's I never saw kind of who he was until I got back to Alaska, actually. So yeah. that's sort of funny. <laughs> and uh, uh, what, what about uh, Mario uh, Batali? Did you ever work with him? I've gotten to meet him. Okay. Um, he was a huge inspiration for me. I, when his first cookbooks came out, I was working at an Italian restaurant um, in Durham, <laughs> a different Italian restaurant. Maybe mm-hmm. that's my destiny. <laughs> and... Um, you know, what I loved is that he just focused on, you know, two to three, four ingredients max. If you've got good food, if you've got good ingredients, you've got a good dish. Just don't mess it up. Mm. And, uh, you know, I spent some time in um, New, New York and I had staged at a restaurant of his called Lupa. And then uh, I ate at another one called Esca. And I've since eaten at a couple of other places. But uh, working on the working in on the line and, you know, it's sounds more glamorous than it was it's pretty much like you know cut some bacon for him or stood on the corner and watch the 
thing go by, watch service go by as the chef was calling tickets. And but watching food and how he did it, but his his uh, his restaurants are impeccable and they're amazing. And I think his his aesthetic with food and uh, is is again, it's been a huge inspiration. You know, if you have two or three ingredients, probably the stuff will be something you preserved really well yourself or something fresh. And um, you know, and don't and don't mess it up. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things that you're cooking at the restaurant in Durham, the, the boot? It's an Italian place? Yes. Uh, the boot is a pretty casual Italian restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do a lot of comfortable food. So we do a chicken parmesan, eggplant parmesan. Mm-hmm. Um, we do spaghetti and meatballs. We have some really fun dishes that I get excited about. And that's, again, I have a pasta extruder, so I make a, a North Carolina whole wheat campanelle. And I'll serve that right now. It's with a truffle butter and mushrooms, butternut squash, and and uh, kale. We've got a dish. It's a kind of a traditional. It's sort of like a beans and rice type of thing. Um, Sunday dinner. It's called a brajol. You know, we use top round, and you you portion it out to three or four ounce portions. Pound it out. Breadcrumbs, pancetta, uh, parsley, garlic, red pepper flake, and you roll it up and put a toothpick through it. And you put it in a tomato sauce with a beef, you know, we, we make our own beef gloss. So we add a little beef stock to it. And it's kind of a, we call it a Sunday gravy. So we've been doing that as specials uh, off and on since I've been here. And we just kind of took it and put it on the menu. And that's been, been really exciting. We do a crispy duck leg, uh, a lot of work with pork and, you know, and then kind of where the specials take us to seafood. But it's fun right now as I'm building up kind of an arsenal of ingredients. So like, for example, uh, I do some meat curing and work with that uh, pancetta and prosciutto cotto, um, which is a cooked prosciutto. So we take it and cure it for five weeks and cook it. Whereas with prosciutto, you'll make it and you have to let it sit for, you know, 12 to 18 months. So it's kind of a quicker way to use it. And uh, I've been curious about this, and I've heard this a couple of times from people that I've eaten out with when I go to uh, Italian places, which is which is honestly not that often. But um, uh, can you tell me about the pricing of a plate of spaghetti and meatballs? Because sometimes, uh, you know, it can go up to like $17 for a plate of spaghetti and meatballs. And, um, you know, at home, when you when you want to cook something really quick, sometimes it's just, you know, spaghetti that you make and it's fast um you know sometimes you're using cheap ingredients i mean what makes a plate of spaghetti and meatballs like 15 17 dollars can you explain that yeah well i think you know first of all there's different margins if you will so for example generally speaking a restaurant wants to do i think it's like 35 percent labor so you mm. do it's like 26 to i believe 28 percent for the staff and then management is the, the latter of that the smaller amount. Food costs, you want to hit, traditionally, I was told, like 33%. With restaurants and pasta in particular, you'll go down to probably, like, you know, I think I'm at 26. If I'm charging a dollar for a plate of food, I should spend 26 cents on ingredients. Mm. And it should cost me about 35 cents to make the whole dish as far as, like, people producing it and cooking it. Um, and then you take out, you know, on top of that, you've got your rent, insurance, overhead, um, utilities, things like that. So there is some stuff that's like, I know what you mean, like as far as that goes. I think one difference, for example, our spaghetti meatballs and our chicken parmesan and eggplant parmesan are all $15. Mm-hmm. Um, we do about a six-ounce portion on all the protein. 
you know, I have one guy that works six days a week. Um, he works five to six hours a day and he makes meatballs twice a week with 30 pound batches. Wow. So, I mean, I have to pay him. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I personally, you know, will usually break down the, the beef and the pork, for example. So, you know, that's $5 a pound. And then you break that down into how you're yielding it um, and making that work. Uh, pasta is relatively affordable. Once you cook it, it triples in volume and doubles in weight, for example. So six ounces is three ounces of pasta raw. Mm-hmm. Um, but all that stuff takes time. The plate you put it onto, the service you get. I mean, what I've noticed kind of that's been interesting down here is that I've, I have a lot of because I've lived here before, even though I'm returning, I still know a lot of the chefs that have become established here. And I have some friends, a friend that I used to work with is one that owns the restaurants that I'm working with in the catering company. But it's just interesting because you'll see restaurants and then you'll see kind of more of a quick. So I've got a friend of mine that has a, a finer dining restaurant, but yet he, he has two restaurants that are quick service, meaning counter service. So you go up and you order food, you get a tray, maybe they'll bring it out to you. Um, you know, you throw a dollar tip on, but instead of, instead of 20% or something. So it's, it's interesting. It's kind of the idea of, again, going back to food accessibility and, and reaching people and, and feeding people in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, what you don't think about when you, you know, catering, for example, as well, I mean, people say, oh, well, I could get this or make it at home. But, you know, then you're thinking, well, you're at a, a wedding with a hundred people and I have to pay these you know, eight people to put the food out, <laughs> to come here, put it out, clean it up, take care of it. You know, I've got to cover things that break or get lost. Yeah. Um, so there's there's kind of an overhead in there that, that is sort of easy to kind of overlook, I guess. Right, right. Okay. And a, a couple of times you mentioned uh, being a, a, a big fish, small fish. Uh, what does it mean to be a, a big fish? I mean, how do, how do you get to that, that point there? Well, in Alaska, for example, I, I uh, probably just the fact that it was such a smaller state, mm-hmm. uh, maybe that I had grown up there, maybe that I had worked there for a few years and was focusing on certain things. Again, I was a chef that had, you know, would start conversations with governors about food policy or mariculture bills that they're putting out or how to work with, you know, sustainable efforts with the meat industry. I don't, so it just kind of, I got myself known. I mean, so for example, I, in Alaska, I was, you know, I was the guy that got called to cook when Al Roker came for the Today Show. And it was, a mm-hmm. Alaska was the last place in the country that he hadn't slept overnight on, on work. Mm-hmm. Um, got to cook for President Obama, got to cook for uh, Jacques Pauvin and Lydia Bastianich, oh, wow. which was amazing. I mean, it was just, you know, you're literally living history and I'm cooking for this guy. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just sort of, I guess that's kind of what I would say. And part of it is, again, maybe how much time I've been here. I mean, I've, that was sort of an alert to coming back to North Carolina was that if we were moving somewhere, it's, I had lived here for five years. So I kind of, you know, had a somewhat of a network, but there's, there's chefs that have been working in restaurants and kind of doing what I've been doing and, you know, for 20 years and they've become well-known and those go-to folks in the community. As the economy is growing, there's a lot of diversification. So I'll see a chef, um, has two or three restaurants and that seems pretty, not common, but common enough. I mean, I know multiple people that have two or three restaurants for kind of that interesting small business ownership side of it. Yeah. Uh, are you wanting to start your own restaurant in the future? 
You know, I wouldn't be opposed. I would say what I'm doing right now is sort of a sweet spot because I think that restaurants are challenging. I mean, it's sort of funny mm-hmm. when you talk about the cost of food, but it's also generally speaking, if you do, you know, if you own a restaurant, and you do a million dollars in sales, the profit is, you know, two, 3%. <laughs> so, you know, um, okay. I've found that personally with catering is where I, I tend to see like where if I'm putting an effort into it and you're making it work, that's kind of where you see a good return on investment and time. Yeah. Um, and as I get older and my daughter and my wife and, you know, I, luckily my wife has been patient with me for a long, we've been together for almost I think 20 years now. Yeah. Um, my daughter's seven and, you know, and part of the, you know, part of coming down here too was work-life balance. If it was the right group of people, I would, I would be interested in doing something like that. But I did have a restaurant on my own for three years. And that was um, the one thing I learned is never to do something like that by yourself because you can't do everything and be everybody. That was Chef Rob Kinneen. Find him at The Boot in Durham, North Carolina. Music was created for Toasted Sister by C.W. Ione. Check out his rock and blues music at cwion.com. That's c-w-a-y-o-n.com. Thank you for listening, and please rate and review Toasted Sister on iTunes because that'll help more people find out about Toasted Sister. Mm-hmm.